It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. podcast fright fest preview series and today i've got two guests with me i've got harry lindley and i've got julian mack hello guys morning hello hi morning indeed morning indeed saturday morning nice and sunny in london um and we're here to talk about control without any vowels that, that, mm-hmm. that's the bracket it's not the title the title is spelled c-t-r-l c-t-r-l that's yeah. the one so, um, before we get into anything, does one of you want to give me a brief synopsis as to what Control is about? Uh, I can give it a go. Go on. Uh, it's, it's a horror sci-fi. It takes place in one apartment, and uh, it follows a reclusive programmer, his girlfriend, and her new boyfriend, and they're held hostage by a rapidly evolving artificial intelligence uh, that's that's the brief synopsis. That's the logline. Yeah, I like the idea of being held hostage by a rapidly evolving artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, right then, uh, before we get into talking about the film, I need I need something personal from you guys first. So I'll let you yeah. take it in terms. I want you to tell me um, what's your first sort of memory or um, sort of. Um, First experience of horror that sort of led you mm. on this path to making a horror film. That's a good one. Um, I remember when we, I must have been like nine or ten, and when Blockbuster was still around mm-hmm. back in the day, mm. and look uh, walking down the horror aisle and seeing the cover for Carrie um, oh. with her and just the, the blooded dress and being just terrified by the the artwork alone. Um, but I think the first movie I remember watching was, uh, I think it was called My Little Eye. I don't know if you remember that one. I do, yes. Yeah, which I, I think is underrated gem. But uh, the kind of big brother premise in in a, part, in a, in a big house uh, and people are incrementally knocked off. And I remember being terrified watching that. And that was, must, have been, must have been too young to be watching that. But that was, that was another... <laughs> hell, of a, hell of a twist at the end. Yeah, no, it was awesome. Yeah. Great movie. Uh, and for me, probably um, where I remember watching The Ring, uh, aged, I don't know, like 11, mm-hmm. and then someone being like, hey, but have you seen The Japanese Ring? <laughs> and then having to like stay up until the early hours of the morning, terrified watching this film, because everybody was like, yeah, 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 I'm not scared, I'm not scared. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that is, a, that is a terrifying one. 
Yeah, sleep sleepovers for me, just full stop. It used to always be horror movies we'd get and just seeing who, who could last the longest. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it, horror, horror is a nice communal experience. I had, I had my, I was at a screening this week and, and weirdly, for as long as I've lived, it's the first time I've ever seen anyone physically jump out of their seat. Like, <laughs> I, 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 the guy next to me, Literally, knees came up above his head. I've never seen that. <laughs> I, I, I saw a hereditary of my dad the other day, and when yeah. the um, when the pigeon hits the window, he he, he absolutely lost it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he like yelped, and everyone, everyone was laughing. It's amazing, isn't it, how a film can get you like that? Yeah, no, so I think that's one of the good things about the horror genre. Full stop. It's like it's always a good experience. It's always a visceral experience, Ooh. or. Um, you know, something happens. It's like comedy. You know, there's, yeah. there's a certain guarantee that you're going to laugh or you're going to be scared, and it always it makes it a good experience. Yeah. yeah. Now let's get onto your film, Control, which is is is, is this its world premiere at Fright Fest? It is. Yes, it is. Congratulations! Congratulations! You must be buzzing. We are. Yeah. Got it. We're getting to share it at Leicester Square, which is very exciting. Yeah, well, I mean, more or less like the home of world premieres. So you 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 join you join a list of uh, very very prestigious films. <laughs> yeah, we do. <did. laughs> um, so it's um, it, it, I'm, I'm looking at the IMDb and you and, and Harry, you're credited as the story, and the pair you're credited. Uh, for, and, I'm sorry, and Julian as well. And um, so, do you want to give us um, sort of how this idea was conceived? What was the kernel of the idea that led to Control? Yeah, well. Um... I was watching the special features on the uh, Matrix 10-disc special edition, <laughs> and uh, there was a couple of books they said that were required reading for the cast, and one of them was Out of Control by Kevin Kelly, who's the uh, founder of Wired magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about how, in the future, technology is going to become more biological, um, and that we should kind of relinquish control to the machines uh, for our own benefit. And I just thought that was a really interesting idea. Um, there was one chapter in particular called The Nine Laws of God. And he kind of outlines a uh, a treaty of how we should give over power to the machines. And we wrote to Kevin Kelly and said, can we? Can you let us use your laws? And we, we ended up cutting them down and changing them a bit to five laws. Uh, and the central character in our film, played by Julian, um, is a programmer who kind of uses these laws as a manifesto for his own diabolical activities. Uh, so that was the kind of kernel of it. Um, and I wrote a draft of the script, which was only maybe 60 pages. Yeah. Uh, and I showed it to Julian initially to come on as an actor. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe Julian should take over from here. Yeah, well, I, I was, and I kind of started in this more of an editor role really rather than kind of writing mm-hmm. um and we sort of bounced ideas back and forward and fleshed out that character and the other characters and um harry did the bulk of the writing but we did a lot of the um well, yeah a lot of the kind of beats in the story we sort of fleshed out um mm-hmm. together okay uh, well, i would never written anything before that's fine that's fine i mean we've got to start somewhere um yeah. uh, so, so that's interesting that you took you, a, a bit like um, Asimov's rule. Asimov's rule for robots exactly. came, came out of fiction. You've now you've now found the next generation of that, I suppose. Yeah, um, in a way, yeah. And what what's cool about Kevin Kelly's books is sort of 
the way he it's a non-fiction book and he did a lot of interviews with people from all sorts of different sectors of technology and farming and agriculture and uh, space exploration so it's a non-fiction book but he kind of writes in this way that's very uh kind of poetic or lyrical so the laws themselves aren't aren't precise they're kind of quite abstract mm. and I thought that tie in really well with this character who's got kind of artistic pretensions uh but is also a programmer and um he has a crazy ego and I can see that he saw the merit in this as a a jumping off point for for what he wanted to do. Well, no, I mean, I, I was I was only joking last night. With, with it was at a family family get together, and we were talking about films, and and everybody kept constantly having to look at their phone. And I just jokingly said that you know I don't I don't actually need a brain anymore because it's all in this <laughs> it's all in, it's all in this phone. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I just don't have a memory anymore. It's just all outsourced <laughs> to the internet. Like I can't remember half the films I've seen, but I, oh, I know Ryan Gosling was in it, and it was in 2010. So yeah, I just, I just, my brain's just given up on remembering details, which is awful. It's funny. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a kind of. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? It's a bit like um, the um, what's it called, Fahrenheit 451, with the idea of government saying they're going to ban, but they're going to, they're going to ban books. Mm. And actually, we we seem to be doing it involuntarily with the with the birth of Facebook and and Twitter and stuff, you know. And yeah. Equally, the idea that machines will take over, whereas in fact, we quite happily let machines in on the game. We don't go, oh, stop, stay away. Uh-huh. I wrote I wrote yeah, a dis- I wrote a dissertation back in two thousand eight, which is really frightening. Really thinking how far we've moved in ten years yeah. about about convergence culture, the idea of you know, all everything becoming just one piece of technology. Whereas uh, at yeah. the time they were calling it the black box fallacy, the idea that everything will be in one machine. Whereas I can look around my room now and I can see a Blu-ray player, I can see an Apple box, I can see a TV, I've got a laptop, Apple phone, iPad, yeah. iFi. So we haven't quite, it hasn't quite happened, but it's interesting that even 2008, AI wasn't part of the equation, yet now you've got Elon Musk obviously investing big. Mm. In that thing that's going to plug into our head, which all sounds scary. So, mm-hmm. so from you, you getting that idea, then where, 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 how did you, how did you dramatize that? If, especially given you were taking it from a from a nonfiction book, what was what what, what could you what drama potential could you see in it? Um, well, it, it it kind of led to the inception of the main character as 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 this kind of reclusive, drunk, uh, lonely programmer with sort of vendetta against the world. Is that is that an, is that an archetype? Do you think? Uh, yeah, just, just a little bit. It's, it's funny you say that because while we were writing it, Ex Machina came out at exactly the same time. Yeah, and we were like, "Oh, we've." And our, our film was initially going to be called Deus Ex Machina. So, Seriously? So we're like, Seriously? Oh, we're gonna we're gonna have to do something very it's different. Right? Yeah. Um, but with that character, and initially the script I wrote was would have cost maybe ten million to make, and it was going to be much more kind of down the Doctor Strange love route with a mm-hmm. kind of big ensemble cast and a situation room and uh, and a kind of dark comedy. But then as we got more into the script, we were like, it would be quite fine if we could actually afford to make this. Uh, so we kind of chose one story out of the maybe 10 stories that are in the original script got you. Uh, and developed that. Um, and I think because we're then limiting ourselves to one room and a small cast as a result of the budget. Um, 
the we realized that it had to be much more personal and about the relationships between the characters and why they're doing certain things rather than what they're doing. We couldn't have obviously huge explosions and massive set pieces. So it became much more about the conversations they had and their kind of conflicting motives and, and, and why would someone choose to do this? Why does someone choose to become a terrorist? Like, mm. where, where does that evolve from? And I think that forces you to really make interesting <laughs> decisions and you can't hide behind any large jazz hand pieces. You, you really have to focus on the details. Um, mm. So I, in, in a way, I think it probably helped us. We, in that first few drafts, it was a lot more, a lot more vague. Yeah, so what, it's basically a kitchen sink drama for the best part, and then and then at the end it kind of ramps up into something kind of more spooky. Yeah. Well, no, and, that, and that's and that's and that is you know that's that seems to be a pattern at the moment. If you look at films like um, like Coherence or or The Invitation, you know this idea of the chamber piece that that is essentially a load of people or a, you know a trio or a bunch of people slowly but surely revealing who they really are. Uh-huh. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 in, or in a film sense, what the big idea is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in that sense, for you, what was, what, was, what was the big storytelling challenge then to make that work? Because obviously you don't want to be, you don't want to be too kitchen sinky or else you're just a drama, aren't you, with a third act twist, as it were. You, know, you, need, exactly. to, you, yeah. need, to, you need to be seeding this, don't you? So how did you, how did you manage to sort of keep it in its, in its sci-fi horror while at the same time building the drama to the, to the big crescendo, as it were? I feel like... I really rate Alien, obviously, as a movie that kind of, for the best part, there's very little you're seeing. Mm. Um, obviously, it does have the big set pieces, but, the, you know, the amount you see the Alien is, is very minimal, uh, and they save it for these kind of big climactic scenes, and I think we, we're trying to do something similar with that within our limitations. So mm. there are those set pieces, but they happen in a kind of um, microcosm way. You know, they're, they're, we we bought uh, insects and live insects <laughs> and various things so that it, it, all, it all happens. It, it's not a huge alien. They're, they're small aliens. They're flies or they're maggots mm. or they're plant life or uh, kind of goo that's dripping from the ceiling. So it's, so it's all there. It just happens in a miniature way. Yeah. I mean, look, look, looking at your trailer, it, it suggests... Um, it's just a little bit of body horror going on. Yeah, big time. Like uh, The Fly was a huge inspiration. One of my favorite movies, and The Thing, obviously, as well, which I'm sure everyone who comes on your podcast says is their <laughs> favorite of all time. But uh, yeah, and we're we're doing that without the a huge um, prosthetics team. So we, we found little kind of quirky ways around uh, making those things work. And we did have a very talented um, makeup artist who did a lot of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she's amazing. Francesca. Shout out. Do you want to talk? I mean, given, given you're working with, you know, with, with tight budgets and stuff then, so what were, you, what were you doing with Francesca then, or what was Francesca doing for you that, that enabled you to sort of give you a sense of sort of punching above your weight or achieving more than, than, than maybe your budget should? That, that, what sort of tricks were you using, as it were? Well, I think I think we were very lucky in that the a lot of people like the script enough to want to work on it for less money than they they should have done. Mm. We did. We um we were all uh, over the period of was it five weeks? Yeah. Um, working on it basically twenty four hours a day, living in the same living in the same place. Um, so in terms of the the prosthetics 
exactly themselves. We um, uh, Francesca had this fantastic um, silicon mm. uh, that she basically could make up every day. So I think the really expensive one would have been to build one prosthetic that um, would. There, there's a few without giving too much away. There's there's one character has a, um, a can I just say that mm -hmm. a bite that gets worse and worse. Mm. And I think the the expensive way to do that would have been to build it and stick it on and uh, and then kind of add to have a series of those and keep adding to them. Mm. But Francesca basically built it every day. So the actor would spend two hours in the chair while she applied it and built it from scratch. Blimey. So strip it from her. And then, and then, like, I mean, she did, she did a fantastic job, but then we were able to augment that a little bit in post. So there's, there's kind of some of the some of the larger wounds that evolve over the course that are actually done in After Effects. Um, but it was good to have a, something foundational actually on the actor, which obviously mm. made kind of tracking on other wounds look much more convincing, hopefully. Given it was a five-week shoot and almost working 24 hours a day, what's your advice to filmmakers about cabin fever? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, suck it up, I guess. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a necessary evil. And, uh, yeah, we probably found it hard to look each other in the eye for a good month afterwards. But it's, uh, we got through it by hook or by crook. We had, we had a ridiculously small cast and crew, which probably helped. So, mm. you know, it was me, Julian, uh, our other producer, Harriet Wade, uh, AD, James Lawton, um, uh, our makeup artist, Fran, um, and then the cast of three and the, and the cast uh, managed to, were allowed to go home. So that was something for them. Um, but the rest of us just lived in the house in the, in the meantime. Um, and, the, I mean, and, and what you're saying there is the, ha the house was the location for the film as well, yeah? Exactly, yeah, which made obviously things like sound a total nightmare. And, you know, we'd have lunch in the kitchen and then we'd be shooting a scene in there straight afterwards. So all that kind of turning around and we were mixing, you know, we had like insects... <laughs> live insects on the counter while we were trying to prepare like ready meals and stuff it was a it was a, it was a real mess but it was, a, it was fun it was a good time so so in that i mean you uh, given that stripped down crew because a question i ask everybody is about um is about conversations with the cinematographer but i note that harry you're the cinematographer as well as a director yes so, so when you when you were thinking about this in 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 sort of look and feel sense um mm. As to what the you know what's going to be in the frame and everything and how it's going to be lit, what what were you what were you what were your thoughts about about the look and feel of control? You know where where were you taking your influences from? What with you know and obviously working working within the constraints of a of a of a of a, of a real home, which yeah. is obviously like a sound studio where you can take walls away or take ceilings away. Exactly. Yeah. Um... Well, I guess one of the good things was, you know, it's, it's, it's my parents' house and I've, I've lived here for years as well. So it's, I kind of know the environment really well mm -hmm. uh, and was able to do a lot of tests in the run up about, you know, lens choices and things like that. And what a few decisions we made were to pretty much shoot the entire film on just a gimbal stabilizer. And that goes for the close ups and the wides and everything. So the camera's kind of always on the move in the space and kind of roaming kind of restlessly around the actors yeah um, and also from a blocking perspective i kind of where possible let the actors do whatever they wanted in the scene they kind of had the premise they had the lines but which meant i kind of just followed them almost almost more documentary than a more traditional 
shooting more traditional coverage. Mm. And I think what was good that evolved from that was a kind of sense of spontaneity in the camera moves. Um, and I mean, as a total nightmare come the edit, so I'd have 20 takes of a scene and I'd be like, oh, well, it was a bit of a close-up in this version. And there's a, there's a uh, oh, nice wide push in there so I can use that. But um, I sort of come more from an editing background, so that was, for me, the right way around to do it. Mm. Um, but it was a real trial, trial by fire, because before that, mainly, I hadn't really shot drama as such. It was I'd more done music videos or things that weren't dialogue heavy. Yeah. So we pretty much threw out everything from the first week because <laughs> I was just sort of <laughs> felt out my depth and I, did, I didn't like what we were getting. And it, and, but then this kind of method evolved over time of keeping it on the stabilizer. And that also meant we could just shoot a lot. Like we could just run the scene over and over again immediately afterwards. Mm. And we weren't worrying about sound much because we knew we'd have to do a fair amount of ADR anyway. Um, so it just, it, it meant creatively it was really exciting it was kind of like we're filming the rehearsals it, it really did feel like that as an actor that you could just suggest something and then it happened without having to talk to a whole team and change the whole lighting setup and because we all it was all pretty much incidentally lit yeah we, um, we, we kind of just lit the space rather than light the actors which kind okay, of okay okay which makes it so it's sort of very practical lighting on the whole and then occasionally we'd throw up an extra led for a bit of throw on the actor's face but mm. it's, a, it's a fairly shadowy film and and kind of realistically realistic looking but again the the main character of the programmer it's a pretty weird apartment that he's got going on so we're, we're using kind of different colored lights and things like that to kind of which is all character based comes from the character but then gave the film a kind of slightly different look to a more conventional um kitchen sink vibe and also just coming back to the fact that the camera's moving all the time, I think that was really important for us, given that we're, it is in such a small location. Yeah. Like if everything was locked off and there were a whole load of long drama chat scenes, it, we, I think we would have lost the tempo completely in the first mm. five minutes. I remember Cronenberg saying that he pretty much uses one lens on all his films. He uses something like a... I'm going to get this wrong, but like sort of 24 millimeter or something like that. So a relatively wide field of view. And he yeah. uses that close-ups as well. Um, and I kind of liked, that's basically what we did as well. Also, we couldn't afford many lenses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it made, and, and I guess that kind of gave it a consistency, which was quite good. The yeah. camera's always moving. The, the, the field of view is always the same. The, um, we're always stopped down to like F2.0. So it's always... There's a kind of consistency just in doing that, um, which which helped a lot to give it a kind of look. Well, they, you know, they do so. Is it desperation is the motherhood of invention? So you know, you, you kind of you, you get your constraints and then you work out of them, don't you? I suppose. Absolutely. It, it was desperate for sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, Julian, I don't want you to embarrass Harry too much here, but I'm thinking, <laughs> thinking, and, and also just thinking about the way that, that films work, because obviously on bigger on bigger films. There's definitely a hierarchy, and obviously a lot of the eyes are on the on the director as far sure, as decision making, yeah. and, and and you know, and it's not it's not like it's not like the army, but it's not a million miles off. But when yeah. you get down to a stripped down crew, and also you're you're a, pro a producer on this, but you're also acting in it. Yeah. How, how how did you how did a how did you manage the sort of right now? I'm the actor now, so I've got to sort of be in that role and worry just about what. Harry wants and what I know the scene wants. 
Yeah, well, well, it's a bit of a schizophrenic scenario because I think being producer, you have to be very organised and have everything, a clear picture of everything that's happening. And mm. then trying to switch into that, this very weird character was, was quite a challenge. But we, I, we basically, Harry was fantastic in that he, we talked about a, a huge amount of it before we ever got to set. So the both of us just had quite a clear idea of how, um, of what Harry wanted. Mm. So so come come the shoot, it was it was almost like a, um, like a, a bit of a rest to be on set and not having to think about all of those other things, uh, and just just try and let the let the scene happen. Um, but yeah, the, the, we yeah we we basically like stay up t till two in the morning plan the next day, wake up at six or seven, do two, two more hours of planning, and then <laughs> I'd become, become the actor. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that, because it's, it's very much, it's like being, it's like, it's like you're forever, you're going from being the helicopter looking at the whole, looking at the macro, yeah. and, then, yeah, yeah. and then the actor having to be worried about the micro, which is the camera roll in that second. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think the way that we shot it helped with that a lot, because the... Um, the fact that all that was really needed was to be in character and Harry would kind of cover it. Yeah. So the, the producer thoughts of whether it was properly lit or whether there was like, we sort of had to stop at the point when, when the, uh, the camera started rolling. Okay. Now one last question then. Um, without, without giving, without giving too much away, and I think we've done a good job so far. Um, in terms of spoilers, but, but just, just as a tease for those who are looking forward to seeing your movie or those that might be thinking about it, um, give, us, give, us a, sort of give, us, give us something that you're looking forward to seeing with the Frightfest audience about, about your film or maybe a key thing that you think everyone should be excited to, to, to be anticipating. Uh, well, it's interesting because we've, we've shown the film to very few people, so for us, Suddenly seeing it in the auditorium with 300 will be very uh, intriguing, to say the least. Uh, Harry just went a bit white there. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I, I think we're, tonally the film's kind of trying to juggle quite a lot. Um, it's 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 predominantly a sci-fi film, but there's you know there's quite a lot of comedy in there and black comedy, and so it'll be interesting to see if it gets gets any laughs for a start <laughs> and laughing in the right places, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but no, sure. I, I think I think less said the better. I think the, the people who have seen it have what, some of the feedback has been. Um, you know, it wasn't at all what I expected, but I was I was I enjoyed the surprises. Yeah, I, I think that the changes in tone. I think that that is the hopefully a, a big strength of it. That if you if you go in expecting specifically a horror film or a sci-fi film you'll 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 hopefully be surprised in a in a good way yeah right <laughs> well no i mean it's, it's a wonderful concept um yeah. and i'm not i mean we haven't mentioned it but have, have, I, I, I presume you've, you've seen demon seed yeah no i haven't no. right we'll put that on your to watch list then uh, oh, with, okay. with, with julie christie from about nine from the early 70s um oh, okay. yeah that might be one to man to uh Think it would make that's what that's what you're right. Certainly, the idea makes me springs to mind for me. I mean, given what you've given what you've said and what I've seen on the trailer, um, there's 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 a there's, there's you can I can see the obvious differences, and obviously we're we're years ahead of what people thought computers were back then. 
Um, but yeah, no, I think I think it's. A, I mean, anything that plays. One of my biggest disappointments with both Prometheus and um, Alien Covenant is mm. the fact that they ignored the big potential of the AI story. You know, it's sort of that's, that's a good point. Yeah, you know, you know, to focus on the kind of toys of the aliens because that's what the fanboys want. Whereas yeah. actually, David's the story. <laughs> yeah, man, David, David, David's such a good character. Yeah. His scenes are the best thing about those, obviously. And because we're not not at that point yet with AI where we can make it look like people. I mean, obviously, Ex Machina is a a wonderful, wonderful recent example that you mentioned. Um, It's it's great that film can play with it and and bring it more to life than the reality because we're not that far... With modelling, are we not? We're not that far off understanding what it might do because Mm. actually we're talking about... Because we we we're, we're we're intelligence and we learn by what we what we experience. So mm-hmm. the minute ones and zeros begin to act like that, which you know, as a few experiments have already shown, with the uh, was it the racist Twitter from uh, from a from a few oh, years yeah. ago? That's, that's yeah. ridiculous. Just by uh, copying people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or seeing well, copying what made what what was popular as opposed yeah. to what got the most clicks, and it was like so suddenly it learned how to get the most clicks was to be a racist bigot. Well, we don't really need that in life. Or I don't know if you've seen the other thing that there's been talking about is AI becoming a scriptwriter. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's that's a scary prospect. <laughs> did yeah. you, did you see the recent example with um, Apple Yards where somebody exposed AI to Apple Yard adverts, TV adverts, no. and no. then and then from that experience got it to write a screenplay. Wow. I've, yeah. I've heard some half-decent kind of classical music composed by um, robots, and we we actually thought about using that as the soundtrack to the film at some uh, at one point, and having the whole soundtrack done by kind of different forms of robots. And there's a mm. few. Some of the sound design is actually from a um, programmer who, unfortunately, I've forgotten his name now, but let us use some of his sounds, and they're yeah. all kind of procedurally generated, and they're kind of blended in with the sound that the main computer in the movie makes. Um, so that was that was fun doing that, yeah. and that was a good seed for it. I mean, what, one thing I think people could look forward to in Control, which is slightly different to some of the other AI movies that have been made, is that this AI isn't doesn't take a humanoid form. It takes it goes down a very different route, a more biological route, um, a more natural route. So that's hopefully something new that we're bringing to the genre. Excellent, excellent. Well, look, thank you very much for your time on the Britflix podcast. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.
It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Palmetto Porch.com.